good morning, everybody, and thank you for being here today. I want to uh, begin by thanking uh, Camden uh, BRI for putting on this conference and for inviting me uh, to address it. I will begin by saying that I'm intrigued by the description of this and our time together as a lecture. The closest I've ever come to that word in the past is from my five children. <laughs> These events are always a great deal of work and effort, uh, but bringing industry players together to discuss our joint challenges is an important undertaking, and I commend you for doing so. Camden BRI provides services that are vital to the future of the food industry and food production, provides the research and scientific exploration that is directly related to improving both our industrial processes and governmental frameworks, and we're all better off for your work. So my call today is for an industry-government-stakeholder dialogue that will lead to a global food strategy robust enough to avert a global crisis. Uh, many in the industry are inherently suspicious of big government that industrial strategies can bring to mind. And let me assure you that I'm not calling for a big government approach, nor do I think that that would be helpful. However, we do need smart government rules and incentives in place to reach our objectives. This is not the time for dogma in any side, but there's no invisible hand that's likely going to get us to where we need to be in the time frame in which we need action. In a tragic sense, there's always been a crisis in our food system, in that many millions have gone hungry in the world that could have fed them. What is new is that an exploding, increasingly urbanized population threatens to extend that tragedy to additional millions of people and drive up food costs for billions more if the food industry cannot meet its enormous production challenge. It's often said that there are no facts in the future, but one would have to be willfully blind not to see the inevitable and ongoing conflation of food shortages, mismatches of food supply with need, environmental degradation, and dramatically rising food prices that will, if unresolved, lead to unprecedented levels of poverty and geopolitical instability. What we face over the next 50 years, as we all know, is a crisis of the scope that threatens to dwarf our imagination to resolve. We have to feed 2 billion more people than we are feeding now, with a diet that is likely more reliant on meat and other animal proteins, and do so without the easy solutions that we've relied on to increase production in the past, more land and water, rising yields, and cheap energy. It's obvious that this challenge can only be met if the world undergoes a massive transformation in our approach to food production and distribution. The world is awash in scholarly thinking about potential solutions. They range from the very macro of biotechnology to the very micro of increasing production in small plots of land in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, I admit I am not the person to add materially to that discussion, and in fact, I suspect that most of the people in this room are more expert than I. While I claim no special expertise, I have been made optimistic by what I've read and what I've heard. I believe that the tools and ideas exist or will exist to meet the challenge of food production. However, I remain less optimistic 
about whether we will employ those ideas and employ those tools in an effective and timely way to actually prevent a crisis from occurring, and I'll tell you why. I'm a practical person. I have a bias for action over inaction. I like to base decisions on evidence rather than speculation or opinion. With the exception of food safety, which is table stakes for those of us involved in food production, I don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. We're in the process of dramatically transforming maple leaf through modernization, technology, systems, and scale, and I can assure you that we're doing so on the basis of best analysis and evidence, not on the basis of theory or preference. In my view, there are two fundamental problems that block the world from acting now, when we need to, to transform world food production. The first hurdle is that there is far too little public awareness of the looming crisis of the crisis as a globally integrated problem that it is, and of the consequences of inaction. The discussion is contained to the policy elites at think tanks and NGOs, but we need ordinary citizens to get engaged and be more informed of the choices that we face. In the absence of this public awareness, citizens make choices, and they push government policy in directions that are purely related to personal preference and unrelated to solving the pending food crisis. The second problem is that there's much too intransigence, too little practicality, and too little sense of the broadest public good amongst the stakeholders that are central to resolving the problem. There are, without question, a number of legitimate public interests in this challenge, and I'll broadly define these respective interests as, number one, availability. Is there enough food to feed everybody? Affordability. Can people afford to feed themselves and their family? Sustainability. Can we do this in a way that reverses environmental degradation and preserves our environment for future generations? Nutrition. Does the food we're making meet people's nutritional needs? And finally, animal welfare. Are we raising livestock in a way that is compatible with our values? Food safety, obviously, in this is a given, in that we have to do this all with safe, great-tasting food produced in a safe working environment. At Maple Leaf, we call that our safety promise. Now, it's not that these interests are unimportant. They are all, all of them, important. However, they're not all compatible. We need to arrive at a prioritization of these interests and an accommodation of the most important elements of each. We need these different interests and perspectives to leave their respective podiums and sit down together, prepared to drive solutions and action. And as much as possible, we need to seek answers to tap into the magic of the word and without succumbing to the tyranny of the word or. We also need this dialogue to be informed by reality. For example, many are appalled by the waste of our world and insist that the answer is in reduced consumption. Of course, there's lots of waste, and I'll touch on that in a moment. 
But given a multiplying population and changing consumption patterns in a developing world, reduced consumption is simply not a reasonable basis for planning. We have to assume that the world will need dramatically more food than is produced today. As the UN Council on Food Security says in its latest report, meeting the challenge calls for yield increases and overall productivity gains in food and agriculture production. I believe the answer, not all of which is available or known today, will be found by embracing six key principles. First, that technology is our friend, not our enemy. Second, waste is everyone's enemy. Third, we have the tools for productive food production. We need to use them. Number four, resisting the influence of the urban elite. Number five, accepting the modest cost of a sustainable future, and then there may not be one. And finally, promoting responsible consumption in a balanced diet. Let's start with the need for technology. One of the most evident needs in order to meet the global food challenge is greater productivity. Historically, increasing the amount of arable land in, in production and yields has been a key tool for increasing the amount of food produced. We're now at a point where any increase in the amount of land in production will be tragic, as it will involve cutting down the remaining forests that are so critical to our ecosystem. Therefore, we have to rely on the productivity of the land already in production. This is a fact, not a theory. Can we do this? History suggests that investments in innovation and new technologies will pay off. Technologies such as farm implements, fertilizers, and pesticides, all controversial for reasons in their day, have resulted in dramatic increases in our productivity. In 1920, American farmers on average produced 30 bushels of corn per acre, and by 2009 that had increased more than fivefold to 164 bushels per acre. Nor are such increases restricted to advanced economies. In the late 1960s, fertilizer helped India and Pakistan double grain production in just a few years, saving millions from starvation. We will likely ultimately need technologies and innovations that are not yet with us, not yet invented, to ultimately meet the production needs. But we certainly need to be using the technologies that we do already have at our disposal, starting with things like genetic modification. Opponents of GM foods are going to have to accept that a complete ban on usage will result in the starvation of millions and the impoverishment of millions more. They're also going to have to accept that it's crunch time, decision time. They have no evidence to justify a hard ban. It's morally unacceptable position to take on the basis of unsubstantiated suspicions and fears. We can ease the burden of increasing food production if we make a serious effort to tackle waste. There are many estimates but I'll quote a very thoughtful report by the UK's Institute of Mechanical Engineers when they said due to poor practices in harvesting, storage, and transportation, as well as market and consumer wastage, it's estimated that 30 to 50% or 1.2 to 2 billion tons of all food produced 
never reaches a human stomach. At the World Economic Forum in Davos this year, the president of Iceland said 20% of the fish biomass caught is thrown overboard, 20%. And a great amount of food in developed nations is thrown out simply because of a lack of refrigeration. Now, for those of us operating in the developed world, there's profit in waste. We can't allow that to blind us to the need for change. We have to own our part of the solution. Almost 2 billion tons of produce are thrown out every year because of the way it looks. These kinds of practices need to end, and we can be smarter than that. The last word on waste, I cannot think of a policy that has wasted more food than government incentives to convert grains to fuel. Something we can do immediately is for Western government to end their subsidies and support for grain-based fuels. In exchange for a very marginal environmental benefit, we've threatened the affordability of food for millions of people. This is the kind of politically motivated trade-off that we can just no longer afford. The food supply issues continue to be and will continue to be most acute in sub-Saharan Africa. In aggregate, food production there is not keeping up with population growth. There are a number of local governance issues that could make a difference, notably doing more to empower women. However, there are production-related issues that should also be addressed. An exhaustive country-by-country -country United Nations study concluded, the main factors that would help improve the level of transformation of African agriculture would include the use of improved seeds, increase the cropland irrigated, increased use of modern inputs, availability of credit and access to markets, good extension advice, and adequate returns through undistorted prices for inputs and outputs. Now, the agriculturally developed world need to materially ramp up their oversight of knowledge transfer including teaching and training, even if it means putting a new competitor in the global field. In Canada, the president of the University of Guelph, Alistair Summerlee, has personally championed projects just like this. Now here's a highly unwelcomed layer of complexity. We have to massively increase our food production while decreasing, not increasing, the environmental footprint of food production. We need to agree on that. We are in a vicious cycle. Our atmosphere recently surpassed a long-feared milestone of CO2 gas in the atmosphere of 400 parts per million. According to the best available evidence, the Earth has not experienced levels this high in at least 3 million years. Feeding the world contributes as much as 25 to 30 percent of the total greenhouse gas emissions. The planet's being damaged by current farming practices, and the world cannot sustain increases in land damage, water usage, and the emissions that would historically be commensurate with increasing food production that will be occurring in the coming decades. The environmental damage that we've already done is negatively impacting our current food production, and a trend one can expect to continue, if not accelerate. Sustainability is not an optional component in any global food strategy, 
It's essential. As Hillary Clinton has said, something is not transformational if it's not sustainable. The food industry needs to really inculcate the reality of the bottom line of environmental sustainability. We cannot try to force policymakers into a choice between supply and the environment. We have to invest in the innovation and the technology that will be required, especially in the area of reducing the use of carbon and the demands on water. A primary reason why sustainability takes a back seat is the perception that it's unaffordable. This is where a coordinated action by government is absolutely essential. No one company has the ability to be a first mover. No company can afford to ever take the cost burden that might make them uncompetitive. But cost is a relative concept, not an absolute concept. If the burden is equal on all players, then there's no disincentive for making the investment in sustainability. Experience actually suggests that once those investments are made, companies just might find that the change in practices will save, not cost money. A focus on sustainability will drive out unnecessary costs in energy use and packaging, amongst other areas, and that would lower cost of production. But the critical first step is for the right set of rules to be in place. In the same way that no sport can function without rules and referees, the food industry needs a clear set of rules in order for us to play the game the way it needs to be played to avert this crisis. Consumers have to play a role in any viable solution as well, and we have a role to play in getting them to that position. Those of us in the food industry need to exercise leadership towards responsible consumption in a balanced diet. There's no shortage of faddish advice about food and nutrition these days. The latest one sweeping the developed world is that wheat is bad for you. What malarkey. We can't afford to get sideswiped by junk science like that. There's no good food or bad food, just good diets and bad diets. Speaking of faddish, we also need to be extraordinarily cautious about food strategies that have become something of a cult of the urban elite, but actually work against finding solutions in this global crisis. For example, things like locavore diets and, in fact, organics are simply not scalable and would exacerbate an already critical gap in affordability, availability, and sustainability. This group of people appears to believe they're doing the right thing, which is certainly admirable, but they're immune to the effects or not properly informed of the consequences. A global food strategy must meet the needs of the many, not the affluent few. The food industry needs to collaborate on every dimension of this. Actual awareness of caloric rules and what causes weight gain, things like calories in and calories out, remain poorly understood. The consumer needs education. Obesity is a complex issue, one that is affected by many factors, including nutrition, socioeconomic conditions, and genetics. The Western world is currently experiencing this 
a major health epidemic, and what is clear is that no particular food product or diet is the cause, but improved understanding of nutrition and diet by people will help. Industry has to play a role through the promotion of responsible consumption and healthy lifestyles. And given future scarcity, we need to wring every bit of nutrition we can out of our food. Promoting nutritional value in the foods we consume and maximizing the nutritional value of that food has to be part of our mission. In conclusion, this problem is one of global proportions and interlocking policy areas. It cannot be solved in policy silos or by countries or companies acting in isolation. It requires public support and coordinated action. It cannot be solved with industry in a pitched battle with the environmental movement or any other stakeholder. Now, I'm a free enterpriser. I believe in the power of market forces, and I most strongly believe that only private enterprise will unleash the creativity and investment to solve the global food challenge. But the market will only be able to do what it can if the policy frameworks are right. That will require the kind of dialogue that's not now occurring. The private sector is essential to that dialogue, but it cannot convene it or lead it. That requires government. This is the kind of issue the G20 group of leaders ought to take on to provide global leadership, just as it did with financial sector reform after the economic crisis of 2008. It can bring the most important economies together and convene the multi-stakeholder consensus that's required. This group has shown signs that it is aware of the issue, but not of the urgency. Local political considerations continue to trump global food security realities. World leadership through this group needs to step up and take the bigger view. We can do this. We have the capacity. Let's quickly focus on the urgent and the important. Thank you.